Hey, good morning, fellowship. Welcome to our outdoor amphitheater. I think everything we're doing this morning is from some other part of the outdoors of Murfreesboro. So hopefully all the green and the blue skies and all that kind of stuff, hopefully that brightens your day. Um, for those of you who are guests, my name's Monty. I'm one of the teaching pastors. And uh, believe it or not, my wife and I contracted uh, COVID-19 uh, just last week. And so we have been recovering. I wanna thank everybody for all of the encouragement, the, the messages, uh, the food, just the care. You guys have loved us so well. And uh, we're very, very grateful. So thank you for doing that. Um, this is a crazy time, isn't it? I, I mean, just such uncertainty, chaos, uh, confusion. There's a lot of that going on. And to be honest with you, even before I got sick, I just started thinking about us as a church and what do we do in these kinds of seasons? Like what is the church supposed to be in those places? Certainly we are couriers of the gospel. That is our primary calling, but what does that look like? And I think that that can change from season to season. And I tell you, the word that really got my attention was uh, peacemaker. Uh, we are supposed to be men and women of peace. And right now, uh, we live, and we always have, but we live in a world at war with God. And so what a time for us to speak into all of that confusion and anger, hostility with a message of peace. Um, even within the church, there are differing circumstances and opinions and perspectives and solutions to every topic under the sun. And there is huge potential for conflict. And so before I actually get in my message this morning, I just wanted to say a quick word related to us being peacemakers in this season going forward. I think that's something very special and unique that we can do, certainly to bless one another, but to bless our city in a time of great turmoil. Uh, there's a great ministry out there called Peacemaker Ministries, and they've got tons and tons of resources we're gonna reference a few of those over the next few weeks, but I wanna show you one today that I just thought was brilliant, just to help us be mindful when we're in the midst of tense situations. And again, certainly there's lots of opportunity for that. Um, the question is, how do we use tension productively, constructively? And uh, Peacemaker Ministries uses uh, a rubber band, just like this. And, and you'll notice this one has Together is Better on it. We've got these for everybody that wants one. So we're gonna have those whenever we get together live, we're gonna hand these out. But, but let me tell you the, the rubber band tool illustration as we think about tension and really using it well. Uh, a rubber band has three states that it can be found in. One is just like this, where it's just relaxed. There's no tension. And so really in this situation, the rubber band isn't doing what it was created to do. It wasn't created to relax. It was actually created for tension. So this isn't the best use of this rubber band. Secondly, um, there is what I'll call hostile tension. And that's where it's aimed somewhere. It's actually intended to bring harm and um, tension isn't meant to do that either for the, for the believer. 
um, we're supposed to use it productively. And so uh, this rubber band, when it's used in that way, it just brings destruction and hurt and harm, not help. But there is a third way that uh, we can find this, uh, this rubber band. And uh, we're just gonna call it in a connective state. And if you think about it, what were rubber bands created to do? They were created to certainly have tension, but to, to hold things together. That's what they were meant to do. And as peacemakers, when we're entering into tension and conflict, that's what we're going for. We wanna use that tension to pull us together. Now, how do we do that? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us to speak the truth in love. And uh, that's one of the beautiful combinations that Peacemaker brings to the table here. They talk about this delicate balance between truth and love. And all of us probably tend in one direction or the other, but we're called to hold those in tension. We are called to speak. That's important for us to do. We're also called to listen. And we're supposed to do all of that for the good of others. And so with that in mind, let me uh, read to you from later in Ephesians what I believe is a great filter for speaking the truth in love. And this way you'll know whether you're doing it or not. This is out of Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I think if we'll put that filter into practice, that's going to be using tension to hold things together and ultimately to build up one another and the church and her mission. So uh, fellowship, let's, let's be peacemakers as we walk through this very, very difficult season as a culture. As uh, the rubber band says, together is better and we wanna celebrate that. Well, let's get into uh, chapter 15. We're gonna go back to it. Jeff started us off last week, and um, we're gonna pick up the story. Um, when I think about chapter 15, it's one of my favorite chapters uh, in all of the Bible. Um, but it, it, in my mind, it's sort of like driving up on a, a car crash. I don't know if you've ever done that, it's not pretty. Um, but this is actually driving up on a culture crash. There are these two very distinct groups of people and they have collided and Jesus is right in the middle of it. Let me uh, refresh your memory out of verse one. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I honestly, the more I think about this, it's, it's like one of the most heartbreaking moments in the Gospel of Luke that we've encountered so far. 
And I want to make sure that we don't dehumanize the characters in this story because these are real people. See, we hear tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes, and those are just these labels that are characters, but, but we forget these are real people made in the image of God who are broken and in need of the gospel. Jesus is in the midst of this, and there is this collision, and... Uh, there's just a lot going on here that we need to make sure we catch. I want you to think about that, that first group of people. Imagine this, and I think it's fair to assume that, that some men and women could have been sitting down with Jesus over a meal. And in that group, um, deceptive, immoral, shameless people, despised and discarded by society, they're outcasts. But these outcasts, eating with Jesus, are experiencing unconditional love from the one who created love. How about that? Maybe for the first time in their lives. And they're drawn to Jesus because he, he's speaking of a kingdom and he's telling them that, that they could be a part of that and they don't know what that means to be a part of a kingdom. Remember, they're outcasts. So just what an amazing scene and then up comes this group of religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes. They're decked out in all their robes and regalia. And uh, they're all uptight and uh, ready to go. These guys actually adhere to laws that they wrote. God didn't write, but they wrote these laws to keep those unclean people or the ones that they deem unclean far enough away from them so that they won't be defiled. They make it known that we want to stay as far away from uh, the unlikables as we can. And what they can't understand is uh, Jesus is a rabbi, so he's supposed to be one of them. But yet he's sitting there having a meal with them, which would mean he's defiled. And they don't get that. Now here's where it gets really ugly. This whole scene happens like it's, like I said, a culture crash. Uh, there, there has to be a group together because the tax collectors and sinners are mentioned, the Pharisees and the scribes are mentioned, and let's just assume there's some other people around. These scribes walk up and it's if, as if they interrupt what's going on. Uh, maybe Jesus and those tax collectors and sinners were having a great conversation. And uh, they kind of barge in and make this accusation. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, obviously, Jesus can hear that because he's going to respond with some teaching, but they can hear that too. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? I mean, they know what the Pharisees and scribes think of them, but to, to hear it and to hear it publicly, and perhaps they're even pointing, pointing out this person or that person, it's just excruciating. Their self-righteousness, that of the religious leaders, and their superiority is honestly as offensive as gross immorality. See, it's, it's both sinful. but it's uh, brought to the forefront as these leaders speak out. 
Well, Jesus is at the center of this culture crash, and uh, he takes the opportunity to teach a timeless message about the heart of God and the effect that God has on the lives of those he touches. Move on down in the text. It says, Jesus told them this parable. That's where Jeff uh, got us going last week. Now, this is one parable and three parts. And so Jeff covered the first two parts last week. I'm gonna cover the third today. But just for quick review, the three parts are a lost sheep, a lost coin, and lost boys. In the lost sheep, one sheep out of a flock goes off into the wilderness. A shepherd chases after it, um, presumably at great risk, finds the sheep, brings it back, is overjoyed and calls all of his friends and family together and they celebrate. They have a feast because that which was lost is found. Second story, lost coin. There's a coin in a woman's house that goes missing and she literally turns it upside down to try and find that thing. And finally she does and she's so overjoyed, she bursts out the, out the door and screams to her neighbors, come, come on, we gotta celebrate this coin that was lost. I found it, I've got it back. And then the lesson from both of those stories that Jesus tells along the way is that that kind of celebration is the exact kind of celebration that's happening in heaven, in the, uh, in the presence of God, whenever those who are lost, spiritually speaking, are found. Well, then he moves into this third story. And in this third story, there's a brash son who humiliates his father and his family and his community by asking for his inheritance before the death of his father. And once he receives it, he runs off to squander every bit of it on himself. Essentially, you need to know that this request is him saying, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want your stuff. I don't want you. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided, that is the father, divided his property between his two sons. Now, in light of those first two stories that Jesus told right before this one, the crowd around Jesus would have been wondering, because they're going to hear that this son is going away to a faraway place. It kind of sounds like that first story where the sheep goes out into the wilderness, right? So the first question they're asking is, okay, someone went after the sheep, someone went after the coin, who's going to go after the son? And culturally, there was an answer to that question it would have been the elder brother. It would have been understood that if a younger brother would have done something as horrible as this, the, the, the elder brother would have just moved right into action. Actually, Kenneth Bailey in his excellent commentary on uh, Luke 15, he, he writes this. Middle Eastern culture has a traditional role for the elder brother that the one in Jesus' story refuses to play. As soon as his sibling makes the outlandish request for his inheritance, the older son is expected to be galvanized into action as a mediator. 
He too has his inheritance assigned to him, but he is silent. His silence announces to all that he has a poor relationship with his brother and his father. He accepts his inheritance, but will not move himself to prevent the disaster of his brother's actions. What we see is an older son who will take but not give. Don't forget that. Now the reason, and we'll kind of pick this up as we make our way through the story, the reason the elder brother refuses to act is because he is just as lost as his brother. He's just at home. Both boys, catch this, both boys wanted the father's stuff. They didn't want the father. And that's the big problem here that Jesus is trying to address. Now, within this surprising dilemma, Jesus is trying to reveal something about himself. See, there's a, there's a desire on the part of all who are hearing the story to know where's the model elder brother? Where's the one that does go after the prodigal and rescue him and bring him home? Where, where is that guy? And Jesus is telling the story to say, I'm that guy. You know, later in Luke, in Luke 19, guess what Jesus is going to say? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Just like the shepherd, just like the woman. He's trying to communicate, this is why I receive sinners and eat with them. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to the story. This next section I call Lost and Found. It begins in verse 13, and we begin to learn what happens to the prodigal son. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a faraway place, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. I mean, how horrific, how pathetic. Like he has literally fallen apart. Now his story is intended to reflect or represent that of the tax collectors and the sinners. Um, his story is their story, and, and they probably would have heard that and kind of said, you know, that, that sounds sort of familiar. I've kind of lived that life. Who knows where those tax collectors and sinners came from, but probably, if they were honest, they would say that they had squandered their lives, that they had lived recklessly and that they were paying a dear price. And isn't it interesting that they're now sitting at a table listening to Jesus? Something is changing in them. But prior to that change, they very well might have been right where that prodigal was. And as they heard the story, they're like, me too, I've been there. Now Jesus doesn't leave the son in the pig slop. He takes him out of that. Uh, to, a, to a great finish here. Look at verse 17. Um, when the son came to himself, he said, 
how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So the young man, we're told, comes to his senses, which means he just, he sort of wakes up and realizes, I'm in a mess and there is no way out of this. I, I don't have the resources in and of myself to take care of this. So he goes into survival mode. And in that mode, he begins to think about the character of his father. His dad is respected. His dad is successful. He's generous. He's merciful. He provides for the people under his care. And so the son, I mean, it's pretty smart. <laughs> He's like, you know, if I just go back and work for dad, at least I won't die. I won't get to be a son but I'll at least have food to eat and a roof over my head. So he decides he's gonna go back. He puts together this little speech and uh, he makes his way back to try and get back in favor with his father. What comes next in the story reveals that he grossly underestimated the kindness of his dad. He just, he thought too low of what his dad would do upon seeing him. But let's pick up back in the story. It says, while he, that is the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now let's stop there. I just want you to imagine this, and, and this is a great place to perhaps discover something in your own heart. So here's the father and I don't know if he goes out every day to look for his son, you know, to look and see if his son's coming, or I, I don't know anything about that. All it says is he's out there, he's looking around, and he sees his son. Now, what do you think? What do you think he's going to do next? What do you think he should do next? See, there's a natural part in all of us, and uh, some of it has to do with our need for justice. We think he ought to go down there and just whip that boy. After all of the humiliation and disgrace, he wasted a huge part of uh, their farm and their resources on nothing. He wrecked his life and wrecked the reputation of his family. So, so his father sees him. And, and what should he do? Well, here's what he did. His father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, he starts his speech. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What an amazing moment. I, I'm, I'm sure there's nothing about that moment that either of them expected. I don't know if the father, and I, this is a parable, it, Jesus made it up, but, but let's kind of live in it for a minute. 
Who knows if this father ever expected to see his son again. It was like hope against hope that he might return someday. And then he sees him coming back, and I'm sure he looked like he was in bad shape. The man's been in pig slop for some period of time. He's lost everything. He's starving, so he's probably just skin and bones. He probably smells to high heaven. And I'm sure the son thought that he would get punished, perhaps even rejected. And instead, he gets compassion an embrace, a kiss. Now here's what I want you to think about in terms of the story. The son did nothing but return home. Let that sink in. I, he just showed up. And his father didn't have a list of things for him to do so that he could be acceptable again in fact, the son is saying, I, you know, I, I, maybe I can work off my debt. And in some ways, the father is saying, listen, you could never work hard enough or long enough to pay that debt back. It's too big. But that work is irrelevant. It's meaningless. I mean, notice how the father doesn't even let his son finish his speech. He's already going down the road where he wants to go with this situation. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, he interrupts his son, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Mm. The heart of the father is on full display here. The father restores his son with a word. Actually, the father does everything necessary to restore the son. The son does nothing again, but literally show up. Father brings out the best robe a ring for his son's finger, shoes for his feet, and throws a feast. And all of these are symbols of familial belonging. And in a sense, it's what he's saying is, son, it's as if you never left. And I'm sure it took a long time for the boy to, to let that sink in and to get that through his head and his heart. But that's what his father is trying to to communicate to him, and why would he do this? Why would a father do that? Why wouldn't he just kick him to the curb? He's got another son. He still has this great estate, lots of stuff. Just like the shepherd and the woman, <laughs> that thing that was lost was more valuable to him than anything. He would have given it all away to have his son back. And so he's just overjoyed to have found what was lost. And for us, as we're listening to the story, and I don't want you to forget about that immediate context, those two cultures that are crashing into one another. 
The lostness of the Son is not the point. It's the mercy of the Father. That's what everyone has to understand if they're going to understand Him. Now back into that culture crash. <laughs> I just want you to imagine what that must have been like for those men and those women around the table who had just been humiliated by the Pharisees and the scribes to hear that, to hear the Father say, you were dead and now you're alive, you're home, you're accepted. And I wonder what might have been coursing through their hearts and minds as they heard that. Do you think they might have been wondering Maybe the Father could accept me. Mm. What a powerful story. And honestly, the way most people talk about this parable, um, this, is, this seems like it's the emphasis of the story. It's like it's the perfect ending. It's the prodigal son. It's the horrible kid who humiliates his family and runs off and wastes everything and comes home and is accepted and everything's great, but the central purpose of the story has yet to be revealed. Honestly, I think Jesus was telling this for the benefit of those that were at the table, but his primary purpose was to send a clear message to those Pharisees and scribes. Remember, there's a second son and unlike his brother, he's lost at home, kind of like the coin. Pick up in verse um, 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Oh, and the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that is the elder brother, was angry and refused to go in. It's a stark contrast to the response of the father, huh? Well, his father got wind of how his elder son was doing so in the next verse it says he came out and entreated his son but he, but he answered his father look these many years I have served you I never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him. So let's just run through that a little bit here. Just a quick review. So the elder brother resented his father's gracious and merciful love toward his younger brother. That, that should get our attention. Like, why would he care? Wouldn't he be happy for his brother? He refused to join in what was probably the most joyous day of his father's life. I mean, just imagine how overjoyed his father was. And he's like, no thanks. 
I'm out. I don't want any part of that. Essentially, just as an aside, <laughs> what the... Remember when the younger brother asked for his inheritance, he was basically saying to his dad, I wish you were dead? Well, now the elder brother is saying, I wish both of you were dead so I could just get it all and have it to myself. That's kind of where we are. The elder brother regretted the years of service he had given his father, which means that his service was done for all the wrong reasons. He wasn't serving out of gratitude for all that he had. He was serving to get something that he wanted. He leveraged his obedience against his father's generosity, and he accused his father of favoritism. And then finally, he renounced his ties with his father and brother. When he refers to his brother as this son of yours, he distances himself from both of them and begins to just treat them as generic human beings. So who does that sound like? You guys remember that phrase that we looked at at the beginning of this uh, message? This man receives sinners and eats with them. I have no doubt that Jesus invited those Pharisees and scribes to come take a seat. And don't you think that they said, are you kidding me? We're going to go sit with prostitutes and drug dealers and tax collectors and, you know, the like, and defile ourselves? No, thank you. We got better things to do. Here's the problem. A heart calloused with self-righteousness refuses to celebrate mercy, like Jesus receiving sinners. And it refuses that because that kind of heart assumes it has little need for mercy. The self-righteous hear the story of the two lost sons and they actually fail to see the absence of a model elder brother. See, they applaud and even justify the elder brother's actions. See, they would be in full support like, yeah, take it to them, man. Don't go into that party. They're just a bunch of soft, weak, uh, family folks in there that are just letting righteousness go by. They view the forgiving, welcoming attitude of the father toward his wayward son as um, spineless. Keller has some really interesting things to say here um, about this part of the story. He says, by putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. Jesus, as the model elder brother, laid aside the infinities and immensities of, be of his being and at the cost of his life, paid the debt for our sins, purchasing us the only place our hearts can rest in his father's house. He goes on to say, the only way our hearts can be changed from a dynamic of fear and anger to that of love, joy, and gratitude is to be moved by the sight of what it cost to bring us home. See, it was very costly for the father 
to receive his prodigal son back. But in his mind, it was worth every bit of it. All the elder brother could see was loss. None of the game. Here's the bottom line. Our hearts don't change apart from first seeing the true heart of the Father and then our need for what only he can provide. So let's look at this last uh, couple of verses here, which really gives us the heart of the Father in Jesus' story. Verse 31, And he that is uh, the Father said to his elder son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I, I think there's gotta be something in him that's just like, what more do I have to say? Do I really have to explain this? That your brother's home and he's not dead. What's happening here, the, the fact that the father left the party and went out to his son it tells us that he is just as interested in getting his elder son at the table as he is getting his prodigal son in there. The son's refusal to join the celebration is equivalent to the younger son asking for his inheritance. I mentioned that earlier. It's funny though, what the, what the elder brother is doing seems more acceptable or, or understandable but it is truly just as offensive to the father as the uh, prodigal son's earlier request. So the father says to his elder son, in essence, you can have as many feasts as you want. You can kill as many fattened calves as you like. All that I have is already yours. But a true child of mine couldn't help but join in the celebration of that which was lost being found. He, he's saying, if you have my heart, son, if, if you know me, if you're in relationship with me, then you can't help but celebrate over this because there is nothing more important to me than this. To remain relationally detached or distant even under the same roof like the elder brother was, is no different than running off to a far country. It's just being lost at home. The father's invitation here is actually a little more than just an invitation. It's kind of a demand. Um, the phrase, it is fitting, which may be in your translation, is, is a little bit weak. Um, the Greek actually carries a lot more urgency uh, a lot more necessity. It's, it would be better to say, we had to celebrate and be glad. It's like he's saying, son, this isn't optional. Your son is, I mean, your brother is back. My son is back. We're celebrating. And you have to be a part of it if you're a part of this family. And so um, he's putting his son in a similar position. I don't know if you might recall the story of the rich young ruler. Do you remember when Jesus came across this guy who had lots of stuff and he was self-righteous? He, he's like, yeah, I follow all the laws. I do everything right. What do I got to do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, go sell everything and then come follow me. Now, 
He wasn't supposed to do all that to earn his salvation. Jesus was calling him to do the one thing that would stand in the way from him giving his heart to the Father. And in the same way, that's what's happening here. This father in the parable is calling his son to do the one thing that stands in the way of him being in relationship as he should be. The self-righteous love their self-made piety more than the Father's grace and mercy they so desperately need. Now, in our context, let me mention that um, this parable is addressing the sin of self-righteousness. And it's a sin that can reside in anyone, not just religious leaders. So don't get married to that idea. This, is, this takes all comers. <laughs> we can all be susceptible to this. This sin of self-righteousness, it manifests itself in smug moral superiority. It maintains false humility while voicing fierce criticism of perceived flaws in others. If this describes you, the problem isn't a lack of effort. It's a lack of awareness. Honestly, that was the problem with these religious leaders. Listen, they put forth as much effort as anybody, but they did it trying to earn their way to God. So it was a complete lack of awareness. They didn't realize that they could never do enough. They needed God to do for them what they could never do for themselves. Like the elder brother and the religious leaders, if this is you, you fail to see the vastness of your need. And you also fail to see the overwhelming generosity of God toward you. To put this into perspective, the most cruel, violent, humiliating moments of Christ's crucifixion were as much about covering the sin of self-righteousness as they were about covering the sin of the most shameless immorality. Just think about that. We, we love to think about degrees of sin, but sin is sin, and it all needed to be covered by the blood of Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross. Now on the upside, this is beautiful. There is just as much rejoicing in heaven over one self-righteous sinner who repents as there is over uh, one immoral sinner who repents. Like, God's happy with both. Repentance is the answer. That's what both of these cultures need to do in order to get back into a right relationship with God. The model elder brother came to seek and save both kinds of lost people. And he calls all who are found in him to join the celebration, to be a part of it. And not only the celebration, but to be a, to be a part of the search and rescue mission that is still ongoing today until our model elder brother returns. So I, my hope for you, wherever you are today, is that if you haven't ever, that you will find your way to that beautiful table. Sit down with Jesus and, uh, and listen, listen to him and offer yourself to him and ask for his forgiveness. 
if you've already done that, if you're in relationship with him, I, I, I truly hope that you might see if you have drifted a little bit into that self-righteousness and uh, perhaps kind of come back with some humility and just say, Lord, give me a, just a soft, tender, broken heart that is broken over my own sin, but also really tender and compassionate toward the sin and needs of others. I wanna ask you for your so what, I wanna ask a couple of questions and, and just give you an opportunity to think about this. To which brother do you most identify with today? And, and I really want you to focus on today, where you are today. And um, what might there be, and you need to ask the Holy Spirit to show you this, what might there be that you need to repent of? And that will differ depending upon which side of this equation you're on. And then, what would it look like for you just to respond in gratitude to the generosity of the Father? And then secondly, how is your heart toward the mission of the model elder brother to seek and save the lost? Are you fully engaged in what he is doing to seek and save those who are lost? Take a moment and then I'll close this in prayer. Father in heaven, I can truly relate to both of these sons and uh, different parts of my story can reflect immorality and can re reflect self-righteousness. I'm so grateful that you are full of mercy, loving kindness, patience, uh, Lord, thank you for doing for all of us what we could never do for ourselves. I thank you for this story that uh, reminds us of your heart. And Lord, I pray that we might adopt your heart for ourselves. And that, Lord, we would uh, be like Jesus to the people around us. That we would be glad to sit down at, at a table with people who are coming from a real hard past or maybe someone who's full of self-righteousness, Lord, could we sit down and be gracious with either and uh, show them the love of Christ? Help us to do that, Father. May you be honored and lifted up this day and every day hereafter. We love you and are grateful. In Christ's name I pray, amen.